Welcome to the What She Said podcast. My name is Candace Sampson. I am currently in the middle of divorce proceedings, working towards my psychology degree, dating for the first time in 20 years, raising three teenage girls, a senior dog, and two guinea pigs. And in the middle of all this, I thought it would be a good time to buy the What She Said media property. What could possibly go wrong? I've been in the trenches with women across Canada for over a decade now, oversharing on the Yummy Mummy Club, Life in Pleasantville, and on all my social media pages, and I totally do it for the gram. And now I'm coming to you on the radio at 105.9 The Region and on this podcast. Apparently, I have a lot to say. So let's get rolling. If you've baked all the bread, then proceeded to eat it all. If you've ate every chip in the house, including the ones you've hid from the family during this pandemic, then you've likely succumbed to emotional eating. We're all guilty of it. Food brings comfort, whether it's the feeling that comes from digging into a giant bowl of pasta or the high of overdosing on a box of chocolates. Many of us have ate our feelings and maybe even ate the feelings of some of our friends and family too. The question, of course, as the quarantine 15 sets in, is, is emotional eating bad for you? I was pretty surprised to find out the answer, and you may be too. But emotional eating is just one aspect of our relationship with food. So my next guest goes a little deeper on eating disorders and when real concern should start to set in. Meet Christine McPhail from the Hopewell Eating Disorder Support Center. Hi, Christine. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, so, you know, I, I, the quarantine 15, I think we're all talking about that. Um, you know, we're at home, everybody's putting on a little extra weight. And, you know, emotional eating is probably on the rise. Would you agree? Yes. So I think just given that we're in these circumstances, they're unprecedented really um, in our lifetime. And yeah, we're, we're coping with food and coping with our emotions with food, um, which isn't a bad thing, which I'm happy to talk about. So why isn't it a bad thing? So a lot of people fear emotional eating because there's actually this concept of fat phobia. So fat phobia meaning weight discrimination, stigma, and, and in general, people being afraid of fatness. And given the world and the context we're in right now, that's actually a really big social justice issue. Um, and it makes sense. That's our culture. So we've internalized this. And so often when we think of emotional eating, people are actually really just afraid of gaining weight and what that means um, for so many reasons. So it's not actually a bad thing because if we think about eating as we grow up, um, you know, even as a small child, food is used for comfort. It's, it's a way to soothe, right? From mother and baby and beyond. And so that's a really normal thing. Um, so yeah, it's, it is normal to eat for emotional reasons. Um, and a lot of the times the fear of it has to do with that fat phobia piece. And I know as, you know, being a mother at home with my children, for me, it's not so much about the eating, it's about the serving of the food that makes me feel good is when I'm making something that my, my kids are, are going to um, lap up. Uh, it makes me feel like I've provided them with some comfort. So, so good. We've established that emotional eating is good. So we should all be celebrating that. Do, do we have to worry though? Is there a part where, um, 
you know, it can become problematic? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, emotional eating is normal um, and it's something that we all do, but sometimes we run into trouble when we're using food as a coping mechanism and we don't have any other coping mechanisms. That's when we run into trouble. So, you know, that's where we have to look at what am I trying to address with food? Uh, what emotions are coming up? Um, maybe what situations are coming up that I might be trying to avoid or soothe myself from? Because that's okay to self-soothe, right? That's a natural response. It's a good thing to try and take care of ourselves. But if we constantly use food and we don't actually look at the reasons behind why we're using it, we end up kind of never really dealing with the root of the issue. Um, and so that's where I would say it's, it's not that it's a problem. It's just that it might be useful to look at the emotions behind the emotional eating. So it's not necessarily what the scale is telling you. It's more of a, uh, a feeling or identifying and being aware of why you're eating in that moment. Absolutely. Yeah. The scale may change when our habits change. Sometimes the scale changes for, well, for a variety of reasons, but um, we can get so focused on that, again, that fat phobia piece and getting really scared of weight gain and, and actually miss the fact that, you know, we do use food to cope and there may be some issues that we, we need to address that go a lot deeper than just that number on the scale. So you work at Hopewell. Uh, so tell me a little bit about Hopewell then and what they do. Sounds good. So um, Hopewell is... Um, the Eating Disorder Support Center for Eastern Ontario, uh, the only one actually, we're a not-for-profit. So we were started in 1999, it's quite a while ago now. Um, and we provide support to those living with an eating disorder or struggling with disordered eating, as well as their family and friends um, in our community. So d disordered eating being anorexia, bulimia, are there others that I'm missing in there? Yeah, so really, we, we don't require a diagnosis for someone to seek support, but some of the common eating disorders that people struggle with, yeah, anorexia, bulimia, uh, binge eating disorder as well, um, ARFID even, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, um, and everything in between. Um, really, if somebody's having a difficult relationship with food in their body, um, they're more than welcome to, to seek out our services. Now, I'm the mother of two teenagers, and uh, now I, I might be wrong on this, so I'm just, I, you know, correct me if I am. For uh, issues that surround anorexia and bulimia, is it the teen years when that sort of becomes a bigger issue, or can that happen at any point? Yeah, it's a great question. So eating disorders can affect um, people of all ages. Um, often we, we have the stereotype of the young white cisgendered woman who, who develops an eating disorder, and that's certainly the case in some instances, but it really doesn't discriminate and um, can be affecting anybody of any shape and size, any racial background, uh, socioeconomic status. Um, and yeah, eating disorders can start very, very young. Um, right now, I believe the youngest age is five years old. Um, wow. It, it really affects the whole lifespan um, and, and that's why they're, they're very serious. So, I mean, when you talk about somebody at five years old developing an eating disorder, they are likely not developing that because of what they're consuming in the media. Or is that sort of, where would that come from? What would that stem from for somebody that young? It's a great question. So, 
you know, even at five years old, um, they, they may have internalized those messages in the media and in our culture. Because if you remember, we're immersed in this culture, right? That we call it diet culture or fat phobia, but um, that is our society. And so um, children very young can pick up on those messages. But we know that that's not the, the one and only sort of cause of an eating disorder. Eating disorders are those, they're a biopsychosocial based disease. So that means that there's genetic risks, um, you know, certain things in the environment, and, and there's a lot of reasoning behind it that we don't understand yet. What would be some of the environmental reasons for, for it? So something like someone experiencing food insecurity um, or any issues with feeding, um, that could be something that happens sort of in their environment. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's, that, those are the two main things I would say, that food security piece. So whether they have access to food and also just, yeah, their ability to access food in different ways. Do you anticipate any problems with this uh, because of COVID, of people, uh, you know, developing an eating disorder? And if you do anticipate it, is there a particular uh, uh, disorder you are anticipating will be higher? Mm, yeah. So right now, there's been a lot of talk around um, COVID re really being very dangerous for those who are living with an eating disorder because of the physical distancing and people being isolated. Um, it just means that they're more likely to turn to their eating disorder. Um, so eating disorders are a mental illness. They're not a choice. Uh, but obviously, being in isolation, not having support makes people more at risk. So um, yeah, and I do think that there will be people who will come out of sort of this um, pandemic either with an eating disorder or um, well on the way to having one. Um, but people are always at risk. And so when you put that with the high stress situation we're in, it, yeah, I would expect an increase. Not in a particular disorder. Um, you know, there's different disorders that affect different people and we don't always know what people will develop. Um, but that cornerstone is that really difficult relationship with food. So. And it's interesting talking to you because, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people over the last, you know, a couple of weeks, you know, about surrounding PTSD and, you know, depression and anxiety and all the different ways this is going to manifest in our lives. When I think about an eating disorder, you know, it's funny as we were talking about this, I was thinking, I very specifically remember the feeling I felt going into the grocery store and the shelves were bare. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> and I'm curious how that will affect people, you know, if it will perhaps manifest into an eating disorder because of that association yeah. in our culture, because that's something we've never really had to experience. Right. Yeah. So that, that's where that food security piece comes in as well. So, you know, a lot of people will experience food insecurity generally and not have access to food. But what we saw with this is, yeah, shortages on the shelves where we all were sort of experiencing anxiety about getting food on the table and, and, and continuing to have food on the table. Um, that deprivation piece is a huge trigger for a lot of people who struggle with eating disorders. Um, so, yeah, it, it could definitely have a big effect. How do you help people then through these um, through these disorders? What are sort of sort of some of the um, uh, methods to help them conquer this? Right. So, I mean, at Hopewell specifically, we're the peer support side of things, that community support, and um, that can be really helpful for reducing isolation. And again, just you know, knowing you're not alone with this. Um, a big, big part of it, it is a mental illness when we develop an eating disorder. So um, 
you know, having a therapist, seeing a dietitian. Uh, but even if you weren't diagnosed with an eating disorder, if you struggle with your relationship with food or your body, therapy and seeing a dietitian who's um, ideally weight inclusive and, and has some knowledge about eating disorders, um, it can be useful for anyone who's struggling, even if you don't meet that diagnostic criteria. Um, and a, a big way that we help people in that setting is helping people learn to have other coping skills and also addressing why they may be using the eating disorder or using eating disorder behaviors to cope. Um, that's the therapy side of it. So yeah, it, it's very individual depending on the person, but ideally we're normalizing their relationship with food and their body and also finding like what makes them tick? What kind of person do they want to be? Um, who are they beyond the eating disorder? That's that's probably one of the main questions when somebody is seeking recovery. Is there a uh, age range that you typically see though? Mm, so um, at Hopewell, we work with adults um, mostly, and we also have a mentoring program where we work with adolescents, like you said, that high-risk group. Um, so I would say majority of our clients are between the ages of 20 and 40, but we, we definitely have some outliers. Like I said, eating disorders can affect anyone. So, um, we see people of all ages. Okay. So let's talk about triggers then, you know, what, what are some of the triggers that people, uh, cause them to, uh, you know, either relapse into a behavior that they, they're aware of or begin a behavior maybe, you know, into, into one of these disorders. So triggers are very, very personal. So I, I will, I'll give you a few, but of course it's different depending on the person. Um, so, you know, thinking of eating disorders as mental illnesses, um, you know, a trigger could be an increase in anxiety or stress, like we're currently in. Um, it could also be, you know, something that affects their self-esteem. Um, that could be a variety of things, whether it's, you know, um, gaining weight, uh, possibly clothes not fitting, um, judgment from peers, that weight stigma piece. So uh, yeah, if anybody has experienced any kind of shame around their body, that can be a big trigger. Um, and, and we see messages like that, but that do, they are shaming messages that tell us to do better, move more, eat less all the time. Um, and so it's very easy for someone to be triggered by that messaging. Uh, sometimes a trigger could be what family and peers talk about as well. So again, that diet culture, people talking about weight loss, complimenting weight loss, uh, talking about their diets um, can be really, really triggering for people. How do you, how do you talk about diet culture with mm -hmm. people who come to you uh, for help? Because it is all encompassing in our society. Yeah seems to be everywhere we talk about it. And even when we say we're not going to talk about it, we still sort of come around to it somehow, right? We just can't get away from it. And, you know, I think people who even maybe don't have an eating disorder at various times in their life have felt that pressure. Absolutely. It affects everyone. And that's how I communicate it with um, clients at Hopewell and also um, people I see in my practice is that you know, we're all victims of diet culture and it's rooted in classism, racism, white supremacy, everything that, you know, um, we're learning about, um, and well, I'm saying we as white people are learning about um, more and more and, and sort of recognizing we have this whole society, this whole structure that really demonizes larger bodies. And um, yeah, I think just honestly, just saying, yeah, like this affects everyone and you're not alone with it is, is probably the best way to approach it for someone who's struggling. From a historical aspect, I'm curious, have you done a lot of looking at sort of 
the ideal body type through the years because you know I've we've all seen those you know it used to be women used to be quite curvy and then that was quite thin and it's it's always interesting to me who decides what that ideal is <laughs> at a certain time right yeah so uh, historically men have <laughs> <laughs> decided that um it's interesting. It's um, there's a really great book called "Fearing the Black Body." Um, it's a wonderful resource, and um, that actually chronicles that history of how the ideal body has changed in relation to our relationship with racism, essentially. Which is, it's it's really interesting. It's important for people to understand. So the ideal has changed, um, and often it's a reflection of. Um, of white supremacy and idealizing a certain body type that gives white individuals priority over um, those from other cultures. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrible history. It's awful, but like I said, it's important to understand that. Um, the other piece for what dictates sort of the ideal is it has been predominantly men directing it towards women. Um, you know, th this idea that men have a say in this and, and, and women were seen as more, you know, the submissive or whatever sex is, is a huge part of it as well. And so it is a way of um, the patriarchy functioning in its full capacity of, of keeping women down and, and having these unrealistic ideals. Um, and also just the fact that somebody would think they have a right to say what the ideal body is. That's, that's a problem in itself. Lisa, do you think the fashion industry is in this? Because, you know, I think about it as we're talking about this, I think about the fashion industry, uh, you know, years ago, many, many years ago, I used to work at The Gap and I remember I would, I would, I would fit in a size uh, six, uh, you know, and then as the years went by, that was a four and then that was a two and mm -hmm. now it's a zero. I really haven't changed my weight that drastically, but I'm pretty sure the sizes have changed significantly over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not my size changing, yeah. But I'm, I, but I'm looking at it, going, oh, look at me getting smaller. Hmm. Yep. That concept is called vanity sizing. <laughs> so it, it's really that it, it puts that emphasis again on people want to see themselves in a certain size of clothing. You know, we we derive our worth from that in a lot of ways. Same with the number on the scale, unfortunately. Um, and so that, that is a big sort of manipulation of the, the clothing and fashion industry is to, to play in on that insecurity. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, it's called vanity sizing when we see that. And, and also just the fact that clothing sizes are not a like consistent thing anyways between brands. So, um, yeah, it can be really challenging, which is why. And yet they seem to be in the men's, in men's clothing. Uh-huh. You know, a 32 is a 32 is a 32 across all, you know. So it's, it's interesting to me that there is no standard sizing in, in um, women's clothing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm positive that you must have feelings on this. Mm -hmm. Do you have some, uh, some thoughts how we can push back on that to create mm -hmm. a more equitable, you know, system in the fashion industry and for women in general? Absolutely. Yeah. So... I think one of the first things that people can do is, you know, it's good to look at your own relationship to food and weight and that culture. And, um, you know, we have to start with ourselves sometimes, but 
when it comes to that systemic change, it's, it's speaking out, right? It might be sharing stuff on social media. That's a simple thing to do. It might be purchasing books written by those living in larger bodies or coming from marginalized communities about the topic. Um, it could be writing to your favorite store and, and sending a complaint because you only see white thin models on their website, right? So there's lots of little ways to push back. Um, and, and just, I think calling it out when you see it is actually the most impactful. If, if everyone, when a diet kind of conversation or diet culture conversation started, if everyone could be like, nope, that's not gonna be okay, we wouldn't be in this situation. Um, it's just really socially acceptable right now. And so that's a good way to challenge it and, and educate others too. Now, not everybody who's listening to this is going to be able to access Hopewell. What are some resources you would recommend to people? Are there, are there things that people can listen to, watch, read that you would recommend? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't have a full list kind of off the top of my head, but um, some great places to start would be uh, the National Eating Disorder Information Center or NEDIC um, in Toronto. Um, that's our national eating disorder organization. So they have some really great content and information and, and likely some great resources on their website. Um, the other sort of website that comes to mind is the Association for Size, Diversity and Health um, in the States. Um, and that's the health at every size concept, which is um, a form of healthcare that looks at respecting people in all body shapes um, and helping people with really taking care of themselves with gentle nutrition, joyful movement, you know, health is not an obligation. Um, these are things that you can do if you want to. Um, and it is a weight inclusive approach. So I think that's a really great resource for people to just learn a little bit more about how we can talk about bodies and food differently. Um, one thing that comes to mind <laughs> right away is Christy Harrison, who wrote Anti-Diet. Um, and she's the host of Food Psych, which is a really great podcast. And she actually does interview different people. Um, and so you can hear voices from different communities and different cultures and, and different lived experience. So um, that's probably one of my best recommendations to listen to Food Psych. I have a couple of actually just talking to you that I'd like to throw into the, to the mix here because I watched a video from Lizzo mm -hmm. on TikTok the other day that has gone viral. Yes. Uh, you know, there's some swearing, but, you know, you have to get over it because the messaging is perfect. Uh, you know, it's just, it was spot on the way she called it out. Uh, people calling her out on her weight, which they have no right to do, obviously. And the actress from, I'm trying, I can't think of her name, is uh, Jamila, oh, she's from The Good, the good Place. Oh, and yes, yeah. She actually has gone after the... Um, the tea industry, mm. you know, that sells those teas yeah. through, through the likes of the Kardashians and so on. That is um, obviously just selling this wrong messaging to our kids, obviously through social media. So just quickly before we wrap up, do you, how do you see social media impacting, you know, because when I was growing up, obviously the messages I was receiving were through magazines, um, yeah. through commercials. <laughs> It was, it was a little less insidious uh, because obviously my time on those places were, were uh, I just wasn't there as much. But social media, I mean, my kids are on it all the time. So how are you seeing that shaping the youth now? So, you know, 
I, I kind of grew up the same way, not having the same level of media exposure. And I think the reality is we know that the more people see a message, the more they internalize it and believe it. That's how advertising works. That's why we hear the same commercials all the time and see the same posters. And so, yeah, we're, we're in a higher risk situation now because of the level of media use. Social media is really unique in the sense that it is a way that people end up comparing themselves with this sense of like a highlight reel from others. That's really dangerous. We don't see people's whole story when we look at their Instagram page or, or even TikTok page. And so that's really important, I think, as well for, for youth, but adults to understand and, and know that it impacts us. So, that, so actually, so just before, uh, one last question. Yeah. Are, you, are you teaching media literacy to yeah. your clients? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So we run a prevention program at Hopewell called Celebrate Everybody. And in that program, um, where we go into schools and community centers, we do talk about media literacy and just like self-care with social media, because it can also be a really great resource to connect and learn about things. So um, yeah, that's what, that's what we do. Try to find a nice, healthy balance. Okay. So for those listening at home, can you please tell me, uh, say your website out loud and where they can find you on social and best ways to contact you? Sure. So uh, I'll give you Hopewell's contact information. It's hopewell.ca. And we're at Hopewell Ottawa on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, And we share lots of content related to this stuff, (laughs) diet culture and everything underneath. So um, that's probably the easiest way to find us. Okay. So I think the best message we've got out of this whole thing is emotional eating is good. Right? (laughs) It's okay. It's, It's normal. Yeah. It, feel, it feels good to be let off the hook on that one because I know a lot of people are, you know, probably stressing behind the scenes a little bit about, you know, the extra weight. And uh, it's really, it's it, considering the circumstances, it's okay. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm Sarah Burke, and I host the Women in Media podcast, where I'm exploring the challenges women face in the media spotlight and celebrating our triumphs. My guests come from radio, TV, news, and sports, and we'll cover topics like leadership, diversity, stereotypes, and more. Most of all, I'm looking to build a community through a space where we can discuss anything. The Women in Media podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at womeninmedia.ca. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.